This podcast is supported by Swiss watch manufacturer Audemars Piguet. At this year's Art Basel in Basel, Audemars Piguet is delighted to present its fourth and latest art commission titled Halo. Created by British artist duo Semiconductor, comprised of Ruth Jarman and Joe Gerhardt, along with guest curator Monica Bello, who is the curator and head of arts at CERN, the European Laboratory for Particle Physics, the large-scale installation will be on view throughout the fair at the Congress Center Basel Hall 4. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Art Market Editor Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Anna. Senior Reporter Nate Freeman. Hi, Isaac. Hello, Nate. And Executive Editor Alexander Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. Got the whole Art Market team here today, the the, the Art Market Brain Trust here. Um, we're going to be looking back a little bit uh, at the art market in May, which was a frenzied month for the trade. There was the Rockefeller and New York auctions, both uh, providing big litmus tests uh, as to the health of the market and also revealing how expectations can play such a big role in how even objectively massive sales are perceived. But we'll also be taking a look forward to Art Basel in Basel, which opens to VIPs on June 12th. I believe you three are all going to be there. So why don't we start with a recap of the auction season? The Rockefeller auction was in early May, largest estate sale ever. Nate, you covered sort of the main evening sale, but it was it was it unfolded across online platforms, day sales. Can you maybe recap recap the Rockefeller action for us? So Christie sold sixteen hundred objects from the collection of Peggy and David Rockefeller over the course of a week, and it started with one uh, evening sale that offered some of their treasures. That grossed six hundred forty-six million, making it the biggest impressionist and modern art evening sale ever. And then the whole week it, it went on to gross eight hundred thirty-three million, which was the biggest estate sale ever. And so this was a huge win for Christie's. Obviously, I think everyone in the city was talking about it. There were some really big lots in the evening sale that really hit home that these were once-in-a-lifetime treasures that people really wanted. And um, Isaac, I believe you found there were some, maybe not once-in-a-lifetime treasures, but things that people wanted a piece of, even if they weren't um, such exquisite works of art. Yeah, let, we can start from the bottom before we get to the top. There were so many trinkets, is maybe the wrong word, but it's also kind of the right word, being offered as part of the Rockefeller online sale which stretched over many days at Christie's. Originally, you know, if you if you went in before bidding opened and sorted low to high, there were things that were estimated to go for only like $200. You know, we're talking lamps, he had a lot of lamps. We're talking porcelain figures, he had a lot of porcelain figures. But as the sale went on, as soon as bidding opened, it quickly, I think everyone quickly realized these objects even carrying sort of lower estimates were going to sell for a lot and by and large many objects that i called out in in a piece that rounded up a few works that you could ca- get for less than 500 dollars actually ended up selling for a lot more than their high estimate and a lot more than 500 dollars uh people clearly wanted a piece of the rockefeller name i mean if your initials were dr you get there's so many cool cufflinks for you to own for you to have for forever it really mm-hmm. worked out did you see anything you wanted i saw the thing that i wanted was this like really weird satyr mug. I can't even, it it was like this English porcelain mug that had a really crazy, strange face on it. And I think because of that, it was one of the few pieces that I pointed to that actually did hover within its estimate range. I'm I'm not the buyer. I can officially reveal that, that I did not (laughs) purchase this. I wanted David Rockefeller's Harvard ashtray with his name on it. 
Yeah, that sold for so much. I don't understand why anyone would want that, but that's just, I don't know. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> You're surprised by the number of beds that were being sold. That seemed very odd. Cat figurines seemed to also be something that they really enjoyed. I know, Isaac, one of the things you pointed out that seemed funny was uh, this money clip. I believe the one with just the R on it, which maybe opens it up to people with more initials, went for $75,000. It seemed like a good opportunity to buy a, a cool early Christmas or birthday gift for somebody that then I guess it probably still was for, for certain people, but became less accessible to, to the mass public, at least. If you think that's a lot of money, uh, the most expensive work of the entire estate sale was Pablo Picasso's uh, Girl with a Basket of Flowers, which sold for $115 million with fees. Nate, you know, can you tell me more about, about this price? I, there were some rumblings that it might sell for more, but this is obviously a, a huge haul. So the initial estimate when this uh, lot was announced months and months ago was $70 million. And I guess Chrissy's thought there was some interest in, this, in the piece because it got a lot of attention. And uh, by March, the estimate was up to $120 million. The night of the evening sale, the estimate was listed as in the region of $100 million. So Christie's had changed it once again. And when the Picasso came up for auction, there was just one single bid. Loic Gauzet on the phone with the client. And it sold to that bidder, who was the guarantor. People were expecting some more fireworks. People were expecting uh, some Asian bidding. Uh, but it just didn't happen. Did it strike any of you that this was also just kind of a weird painting? Yes. Mm-hmm. Very strange painting. I don't think I could look at that every day. Would not want that in my house. No. Freaked me out a little bit. It's unforgettable. I think it's a beautiful haunt- haunting painting. But yeah, maybe a collector doesn't want haunting. Maybe they want something that is more distinctly and recognizably a Picasso. This was an early work of his. Maybe it's not the right painting for the Me Too moment. Right. I mean, I I thought like in this like recent moment where there was a lot of hubbub around Balthus that this painting would like raise a bit of a stir amongst a similar community. D- but just to, for people who haven't seen it, it's um, a kind of miserable and un- unhappy looking young girl Uh, completely in the nude and holding a basket of red flowers. It wasn't the only nude uh, that didn't quite meet with the flurry of bidding and activity that was maybe expected prior to the auction. You know, if we if we hop forward to Sotheby's Impressionist and Modern sale, which took place, I believe, the week after Christie's Rockefeller, the, the main evening sale where this work was offered, that Modigliani uh, new couche uh, was estimated for $150 million, lots of headlines for being the most expensive estimate ever, even though, you know, auction houses could theoretically break that record whenever they want to by just changing an estimate. It ultimately sold for $157 million after just uh, one bid. Nate, you kind of gave us the in-the-trenches report on, on the scene. Why, if this work sold for $157 million, objectively a huge sum, uh, did it kind of feel like... A shrug. There was a lot of anxiety in the sale room that night. Helen Newman, who was the auctioneer, was clearly very nervous when it came up to uh, this lot. You know, when the time came, there was just a single bid, and it just didn't feel very exciting, especially as time dragged on and no one was bidding, and it just clearly was going to the guarantor. That's a disappointing thing to see, even if, you know, the work did hammer at $139 million for $157.2 million in fees, it felt like kind of a downer. I was watching on the live stream at the, the office here with a bunch of people, 
and you know with that affords you a pretty close-up view of the auctioneer's face and she looked quite visibly uncomfortable during the whole affair and then it would pan over to the two boxes of of specialists who kind of couldn't help themselves but to keep kind of craning their neck at the other box to see if anybody was going to do anything you know by the time that they passed up the the piece of paper that announced that it was the most expensive work ever sold by Sotheby's which should be something to celebrate I suppose it just felt totally anticlimactic. Yeah, I remember receiving the press release um, and thinking, oh, you know, that's disappointing or what a flop when, and as you say, it's uh, a lot of money and the most expensive thing they ever sold, but it felt like they were trying to spin it a little bit. But I think what this tells us, um, I remember after the Basquiat painting sold for $110 million last year, a lot of people made this variation on the comment that this is more about what money is worth to a handful of people than what the actual painting is worth. I think this round of auctions kind of highlighted that same dynamic that there are just a handful of people out there who, you know, can spend um, so much money without blinking an eye. Um, And you have to have at least two of them on board to commit to a certain work if you're going to have any of the action that people um, find really thrilling about auctions. Um, And in some of these cases, you know, it's possible, especially in cases where the estimate was um, pretty gigantic, that, you know, there there was a belief. I mean, Nate wrote a really well-reported story about Modigliani's market. You know, there's a belief that there were multiple bidders in Asia who were interested in having one. And so it shows you that if you know, those people fell asleep early or were in a business meeting and didn't want to be on the phone for it or just, you know, decided that like maybe they have enough Modigliani's or, you know, whatever the reason is, then then you don't get the fireworks. Um, And it, it, you know, people call this like thin bidding, you know, at that altitude. Um, But I think it, that was a phrase that came up a lot. And it begs the question of like, how should a market sort of calibrate itself and can it is it sustainable to rely on so few people i mean you know what if one of them has business problems or you know there's a recession you're you know you're you're really at the mercy of this this very small group yeah. of collectors yeah i don't know if, if this came up in, a, in any of your reporting but a lot of this activity has been contingent on bidders in asia and in china more specifically um this round of auctions was happening while some of the trade warring negotiations however you want to frame it was going on and i haven't really heard much about if that affected things whatsoever uh but one one might speculate that that kind of heightened uncertainty in that country despite many of those people who are buying at that level having a lot of their funds out of the country uh could have made them feel less giddy about spending 150 200 million dollars on something yeah, I, I don't know about that specifically, but I do know I was speaking to Brooke Lampley, who is the vice chairwoman of the fine art division at Sotheby's after the Modigliani auction. And she did say that, you know, there was good reason to think. And I think it's something we've all intuited, which is that there's, you know, resistance at the super tippy top end of the market, you know, after the $450 million Da Vinci uh, painting sold, everyone's expectations were really thrown out of whack, I think, because there's two questions. And I think your point um, about what does it mean for the art market that so much depends on these works? You know, it's interesting because I think a lot, the answer is like a lot of headlines depend on these kind of works and a lot of the public interest depends on these kind of big works. It's objectively a huge number, $157 million. But, 
you know, there's there because the expectations were sort of thrown out of whack by this $150 million estimate because after the, you know, Salvador Mundi, the Da Vinci sold for $450 million, you started seeing headlines, crazy, crazy headlines, like is $100 million now like the lowest you can fetch for a work of art? When is the first billion dollar artwork going to come along? People are have a taste now for the spectacle. And that is different than Sotheby's managing a sale quite well and walking away with a profit um, from this sale. Though we don't know if that happened or not, but just because newspapers, including myself and my own report, were sort of unimpressed by this, it doesn't necessarily mean that the market is in a bad way. It just means that there's resistance at the very top. You got to wonder, though, how much they put into consigning that one individual work and what they could have otherwise gotten if they hadn't focused on that. Um, Not that that would have been the right business decision, but if you remove that work from the total, the um, total amount of uh, sold during that sale isn't particularly impressive. It was a bad sale other than that. Yeah. Yeah, Well, so I I mean, it just was it wasn't a huge number. So I'm I'm curious for for uh, Nate and and Anna's thoughts on, on what that means kind of in the Sotheby's versus Christie's uh, head-to-head duopoly uh, cage match. I think it was worth it for Sotheby's to spend on, you know, to get that Modigliani. Otherwise, Christie's would have just so thoroughly drubbed them, you know. Uh, It wasn't a fair fight going into it, and the Modigliani, uh, you know, gave some people reason to be optimistic about Sotheby's. and You know, it definitely upped the total to make it a more competitive race. If uh, the Modigliani and the Picasso kind of didn't wow the audience, uh, maybe the most uh, exciting sale of the entire week, arguably, was uh, Carrie James Marshall's Past Times. Nate, you were there. What was it like? What was the sale like? That was electric. It was really the most exciting moment of the week. There was a lot of bidding on that Carrie James Marshall, and there was an understanding in the room that this was truly a masterpiece. This is a work that toured in uh, his retrospective that was at the Vent Breuer. Uh, it was one of the highlights of that show, and everyone in the room was staring up at it, saying, wow, what an incredible painting. Um, and so that spurred on the bidding, and you know, when it went to Jackie Walker, or the client on the phone with Jackie Walker, it was just a burst of applause like I hadn't heard all week. And that was a really exciting thing. When you have a work that holds an estimate of 8 to $12 million and sells for upwards of 20 that's just a remarkable achievement. Two years ago, I don't think anyone would have guessed we would have been saying the sentence, Picasso and Modigliani were shrugs, and Carrie James Marshall was the most electric, exciting auction uh, of the week. So that, that certainly says something. What can you tell us about the buyer of the work? Well, a very interesting thing happened in the middle of the sale. I was standing by the front row at Sotheby's, and the producer and, and rapper uh, Swiss Beats was sitting there. Who you've profiled, right? I have interviewed him before. He is an incredible collector, a very passionate guy, and one of the more exciting people just to see out and about. And so in the middle of the sale, he takes a FaceTime call from what I saw on the screen as someone named Diddy. <laughs> and then he goes into a corner, and Swiss Beats just starts fist bumping like he's really really excited and i can't see the person that he's talking to but i just saw that name diddy and so afterward i caught up with swizz and i said hey uh who bought the care james marshall and he said it's going to my friend's house so it was one of his friends and that's all he would tell me and i went to gregoire beyond who runs the uh, postmark contemporary department at sotheby's after the sale and i said hey i gotta ask you something it's gonna sound kind of crazy 
But did Diddy buy that Kerry James Marshall? <laughs> and unfortunately, he couldn't give any information about purchasers. But um, Marshall's uh, art dealer, Jack Shaneman, revealed that it was Diddy. So my hunch was correct. Great. Yeah, that's some that's some behind the scenes reporting for our listeners. That's how that's how we make the magic happen. But you know, it's an interesting one because I also I was reading I read that same report uh, that I think was published in the Times who broke the the buyer. Diddy did go and actually see the piece, and I think yeah, he was Instagram. Yeah, sometimes it, I mean I sometimes I I wonder you know how much does the actual like physical presence of the artwork how much can that really change how the the sale or the interest in a work and i think this is one past past times is such a fantastic painting i mean it's and truly amazing scale. it's mm -hmm. giant so when you're yeah. in front of it you feel the impact in a way that you couldn't if you were just looking at it on the yeah. screen yeah i can imagine this being one where you know seeing it really converts you into a true believer and you walk away being like i have to i have to own it and the seller too is also kind of an interesting one it was actually consigned by the uh, Metropolitan Peer and Exposition Authority, which is like a quasi-municipal agency. And it was on display uh, in McCormick Place uh, in near one of the entrances uh, of, of one of the main buildings. And it was purchased for, for some extremely low price. I think it was... Twenty-five, yeah, it was twenty-five thousand dollars for nineteen in nineteen ninety-seven, which is kind of a crazy story that some someone at this municipal agency uh, had really good taste and bought a, a fantastic painting and exhibited it for two decades. I mean, it's it's amazing. It is an interesting case where, in a certain level, it's it's a shame for that painting to go off of public view. Um, I mean, I I think it's one of those where. Uh, among all the kinds of trophies that you hear get bandied about and sold, uh, it's one that, you know, to me personally, is like evokes some jealousy of, wow, I, you know, I wish I could look at that every day. Um, and I wish I had a wall big enough. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Well, yeah, that too. Tough to get that in New York. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day it'll be displayed in the Diddy Museum. One has to hope that, like, you know, he can go home and enjoy it for a while, and then, you know, maybe we'll find it in his heart and uh, tax burden to give it to a museum or at least put it on long-term loan so that other people can see it. And I just remember that it's kind of flooring in the in the retrospective uh, when it was here in New York. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, Nate, after the Basquiat was sold to Yusaku Mizawa for $110 million, I think it was last May. It was, it was a year ago. Yeah, yeah, a year ago. There was a lot of speculation that this would push up Basquiat's market across the board because it was such a humongous price. This is obviously this, this Kerry James Marshall um, painting fetched only a fraction of the Basquiat, but there's sort of a similar question now, which is, uh, is the rest of his market going to leap up? Other works by Marshall that were sold uh, in May in New York th this season sort of, you know, hit low estimates, were, were, did, did very well, but no nothing kind of jaw-dropping or it didn't seem like there had been some last-minute uh, change in interest. Well, it it takes more than just one night for an artist's market to shift, and the Christie sale was a day after the sale at Sotheby's. So that... It's understandable that there wasn't a bump for a Kerry James Marshall work 24 hours after a record was achieved. But at the same time, this is really going to only affect real masterpieces of his that, that come up for auction. This was truly uh, one of his greatest works. And I don't think that other works of his will necessarily feel a huge bump 
in prices just because this was achieved for this work. I think it has to be a really special work for it to um, reach this height at auction. Even still, I mean, maybe that's a good segue to talking about Art Basel and Basel, which is coming up. Do you anticipate, like, if you were a dealer, would you bring a Carrie James Marshall, if you could, to the fair? One point of reference for how Carrie James Marshall might sell in Basel, uh, at Art Basel and Basel this year is last year, a brand new work of his, uh, very large landscape work of the London Bridge, sold at the Jack Shaman Gallery booth for $2.5 million. So that's a pretty big price for a work at, in a fair booth. And I, I would expect that we can see something at a similar price point out of Jack Shaman's booth and also out of the booth of David Zwerner, which also represents the artist. Are there any other uh, trends or artists you're expecting to see at Art Basel in Basel? What is kind of the the hallmark of the fair for maybe our listeners who aren't familiar with the event. And one thing that I think will be interesting to see if it continues is uh, some of these more consistent high price sales that we've seen at the Basel fairs over the last couple cycles. Um, last summer, you had uh, Gustin selling from Hauser and Wirth for, I think, around $15 million. Uh, also a Basquiat selling from Aquavella uh, for around about the same price. You know, it'd been a few years since you'd seen that kind, that level of activity, at least publicly reported at a Basel fair. Then, of course, in Hong Kong, you had the de Kooning that sold from Levy Gorvey uh, for 35 million. So, you know, as more and more of this kind of estate activity is happening on the dealer side, you are seeing more of that that material pop up at Basel fairs, and really only at Basel fairs. You don't see that uh, level of work at a freeze or never never mind any of the kind of more regional events. That is, of course, only one small fraction of the market. And so while Basel does offer this opportunity to kind of transact in, in you know, that eight-figure range, there's much more to offer there. It is the most important art market event for, on the primary market in Europe. I think it's probably one of the more international ones. Last year, there was a lot of um, Chinese buying activity. Some speculated that be that actually Chinese collectors were transacting at a higher level in Basel than they would in Hong Kong just because of the the distance from uh, the Middle Kingdom. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. And I, I think, of course, it's it's worth noting that there's a lot of turmoil further down, whether in the middle or in the lower end of the market. Anyway, that's something that Anna's been doing a lot of reporting on, and, and I'm sure something we should be looking out for in Basel, just like everywhere else. The major dealers um, tend to do extraordinarily well at Basel. Um, from last year, I had uh, in my story that David Zwerner's um, entire booth was worth nearly $100 million, and Mnuchin's gallery was about $65 million. Um, and that, that's just a tremendous amount of money, even if you don't sell all of it, um, if you just sell half of it. I mean, that, that's a lot of money to make in a week. For smaller and mid-sized galleries, who, as we've been reporting um, over the past year and a half, have not had an easy time of... Um, you know, making it in the in this current market, uh, Basel's a really expensive fair and a really expensive city just to be in. Um, the restaurants are expensive, like Switzerland is expensive. Their currency is pretty robust. I feel for them when they don't sell. I, I definitely remember talking to a few dealers who were there for the first time who didn't seem like, from the way they described it, were having a great week. And I, I you know, one can only hope that things like that are not fatal. This podcast is supported by Swiss watch manufacturer Audemars Piguet. At this year's Art Basel in Basel, Audemars Piguet is delighted to present its fourth and latest art commission, 
Artsy's Matthew Israel will be leading a talk about the art commission with semiconductor guest curator Monica Bello of CERN and CERN scientist John Ellis. In advance of the panel, we had Matthew sit down with Ruth Jarman and Joe Gerhardt of Semiconductor and Monica Bello to discuss Halo before the immersive installation opens to the public. Can you walk us through what it's like to experience Halo? Halo is a large cylindrical structure that you walk inside. It's made up of both audio and image, which are completely synchronized. So you'll see millions of points of light, which are the data that come out of the scientific experiment. You'll be surrounded by 384 piano strings that are nearly four meters high, and they will all be singing with the data being played from Atlas at the Large Hadron Collider. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Atlas is, and then a little bit about your collaboration with CERN? Atlas is one of the large experiments at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and it's a place where protons and protons collide and Atlas works as a giant camera to see these explosions and model them and recreate them as points of data. We've taken these and reanimated them into something that we can use as a material in our work. I'm Monica Bello and I'm the guest curator of the Audemars Piguet Art Commission. For me it's really rewarding experience to be working with Ruth and Joe. They have competences and expertise and uh, massive experience in working with scientists and scientific labs. I'm very pleased to see the result in HALO, the largest and more wonderful outcome of the residency and CERN. The project HALO has a really interesting collaboration between CERN and Ulmar Piguet, where they're both looking at time and how to keep track of time. They're both doing this in a kind of bespoke craft-type way, where they need many generations of skills to look at these ideas. For more, stay tuned to Matthew's Instagram account, at Matthew Israel, as well as the Artsy feed, at Artsy, for live updates from Basel. Or check out the Experience tab on Audemars Piguet's website, audemarspiguet.com, for more info on the project. Hello, welcome back. Before we jump into this week's white wine, I wanted to ask you a quick favor. We're going to be taking a break from creating new episodes this summer, starting after this episode. Before we take off, we want to hear more from you about what you'd like to hear more of when we get back in the fall. To do that, you can fill out a quick survey for us. You can find it at artsy.net backslash podcast survey. We'd really, really, really love to hear from you. It only takes a couple minutes, so check it out. All right, let's jump into white wine. Alex, what are you going to be checking out this week? I'm going to jump ahead to next week because there are just, I mean, as per usual, but I think a particularly exciting slate of shows up in Basel uh, this coming week. I'm uh, particularly excited for the Bruce Nauman show up at the Schaulager. Uh, the Kunstmuseum Basel has a couple really amazing sounding shows coming up, a, a Maria Lassening show, also a, a two-person show of Martha Rosler and Hito Stereo, which should be ridiculous. Also, a, a young artist that I really like, Louisa Clements, having a show at the Kunstraum Basel. Uh, so really, really looking forward to the latter half of the week after the most, uh, a- after the action kind of calms down a little bit to getting around to all of those. Anna, what about you? I'm keen to see the uh, Heavenly Bodies show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, it's split between there and the Cloisters, which is which is also part of the Met. Um, and they have uh, garments from the Vatican. They also have um, what our intern Surya calls an, um, what was the phrase? 
Christianity inspired high fashion, um, <laughs> which like, how can you not want to see that? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's going to be a fun show. I love kind of looking at textiles and fashion. So, and it's, it's fun when you feel more virtuous doing it because you're in a museum and not just like browsing in a store. Nate? You know, after a few days of really pounding the pavement at the Mesa plots at the fair, what I really like to do is just sort of go out and explore some things in Basel proper. And uh, one thing that I always love is parkour, which is a sector of the fair that is in a garden uh, inside of a park. And there's always some really cool stuff there. Um, and this year, the always awesome Pierre Hui is bringing a work to our Basel parkour, along with his gallery, Marion Goodman Gallery. And it is described as a beehive that is covering the head of a female statue that pollinates living beings around it. Uh, and it just sounds fabulous to me. Uh, and I'm also looking forward to these sausages in the middle of the fair. Sausages are really important are part of Basel. Yeah. Uh, I'm not allergic to bees, but we'll I certainly don't out. like them. <laughs> They've behaved in past installations of his. Mm -hmm. I didn't get stung to document Him and Terrence Coe love bees. That sounds super fun. I'm going to be checking out uh, the Radical Women Latin American Art Exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, focuses on art from 1960 to 1985. It was received with like huge acclaim um, and praise when it showed at the Hammer Museum in LA as part of uh, Pacific Standard Time. So I'm really excited to catch it now that it's uh, a little closer to home uh, in Brooklyn. All right, well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. It helps other people find the show. As we said already, please remember to fill out the uh, podcast survey. You can find that at artsy.net backslash podcast survey. Our producer this week, Louis Sinsano, with help from Surya Tuba. The theme music is by Broke for Free. See you next time. This podcast was supported by Swiss watch manufacturer Audemars Piguet. At this year's Art Basel in Basel, Audemars Piguet is delighted to present its fourth and latest art commission titled Halo. Created by British artist duo Semiconductor, comprised of Ruth Jarman and Joe Gerhardt, with guest curator Monica Bello, who is curator and head of arts at CERN, the European Laboratory for Particle Physics. The large-scale installation will be on view throughout the fair at the Congress Center Basel Hall 4.